This year is brought to you by Eshel Publications. Eshel Publications is a non-profit organization dedicated to spreading the Torah, Shiurim, and Tzfarim of Rabbi Aaron Lapiansky. For sponsorships or more information, visit eshelpublications.com. All right. Good afternoon. Thank you. Thank you all for coming. I know this is... Uh, I know this is not a great time, but uh, my wife points out it's never a great time to be out of the house. Um, but hopefully we will make it a great time for you uh, to, to learn some stuff and uh, to expand your uh, appreciation of a lot of the different questions and issues uh, that we are faced with in a modern world, in a modern religious world. Um, so just a quick word before uh, the Rosh Hashiva speaks is this is, uh, you may have glean from the posters, this is really just the, uh, the first opening uh, event of, the, of, of a series that we hope it will go throughout the year. We have about 10 speakers and talks lined up on a range of uh, science topics from black holes to uh, genetic diseases, and uh, we look forward to sharing them with you throughout the year. So hopefully this will be uh, just uh, the first of a great showing. You know, please tell your friends and we will, uh, you know, if we have to go to overflow seating, we'll, we'll do it. Um, just a very, very brief thought. I don't want to speak in front of uh, the Rosh Hashiva on, on this topic too much, but uh, I couldn't help but think, of course, uh, you know, yesterday Parshas Bereshis, we lane Parshas Bereshis, and, uh, and we also benched uh, Rosh Chodesh, right? So we have this idea that, right, when, for example, when Shabbos falls on Rosh Chodesh, all right, we say Mikadi Yisrael Viyom Hakodesh, Shabbos Kodesh. Yeah. So, so um, right, the idea is that right, Hashem can be Mikadish Yisrael, and then Yisrael takes this partnership relationship in creation, and then we take the the role of being Mikadish the Chodesh through you know through Re'ia or through through a Cheshbon, and it it gives us that that partnership in creation. And that's really what I had in mind when I, when I uh, initiated this, this series, this idea of, of man, of science, being in, in partnership um, in, in understanding the natural world. Um, so, right, and, the, and of course the, the, uh, the Pasuk is, um, uh, the, the Pasuk for, from the title series is uh, is from the the Tehillim that we say on Rosh Chodesh, appropriately enough, Marabu Maasecha. So, uh, with with those brief thoughts in mind, I will pass it over to uh, Rav Ara. I don't intend to take too much time. You've come to hear Dr. Schmidtman, um, not me. I um, would like a few points. First of all. A big koach to Dr. Shitman or to Jeremy. Um, first of all, he's one of a group of people that have taken a very active role in the board and really doing tremendous amount of things to um, improve the educational environment to the school in every facet. And they get a tremendous koach. He especially gets the koach for this series, which is something that he thought of and worked hard at getting it together. And that's a second Yashakar. And I guess third of all, um, he's, he's somewhat of a role model for many people, somebody who's a consummate professional and extremely highly regarded um, in his field. And people see him not as being also orthodox, but see the intensity and the seriousness with which he approaches Yiddishkeit and the, the idea that one actually strengthens the other. Um, he embodies it. And that's a lot more important. The message when I was growing up was you can also be orthodox and also be a scientist, which almost sounds like a double bit of it. Um, and uh, when they strengthen each other, it's one big l'chatchila instead of two bit of it. So I especially have um, I'm going to say a, one or two brief points about the series in general, and then after the presentation, a, a specific point about this topic. What's the purpose? In other words, what do we gain especially when we look at the world a lot more keenly and understand the extraordinary mechanism with which it works? 
Um, the difference between someone just says, well, Hashem made it all, to someone that can actually take that word all and make uh, uh, and make a, a tremendous series of books out of it. So, one thought is the Rambam, and that's the most basic thought, and then we'll see an Eben Ezra that gives us an even more, a deeper approach to it. The Rambam says, it's in the second paragraph of the Rambam, the Torah, he speaks about Abbas Hashem, and Yiras Hashem, which is the first active mitzvah after belief, is Yira and Ava. So the Rambam says, How does one have Avas Hashem? How does one have Yiras Hashem? When a person looks into the world and appreciates the extraordinary complexity of the world, and he sees a limitless amount of wisdom that went into it. He is filled with an incredible yearning to understand the God that made all this. Like David says, And the Ram adds a second half, which is which I guess is the difference between a, a, a scientist who's wide-eyed with amazement to a person who's Yerei Shemayim, which is Yira. When a person thinks, the more a person thinks about the incredible wisdom and complexity of the world, he's thrown back, he's overwhelmed, and he comes to the realization, that he is an incredibly insignificant individual standing in front of the totality of wisdom. Like David says, Like David said, when I looked around at the heavens and I'm overwhelmed by the incredible size of it, I asked myself, what did man do to deserve to be created? And then the Ram says, and that's the reason why in the next two chapters I will sketch out a, a sketch of the universe to help give you this feeling. So the first aspect of delving into an understanding of the complexity of the world from a religious point of view is that it draws us to wanting to understand God in his fullness, not only how he expressed himself in creation, but um, what did he want out of us in this world, it also gives us an incredible humility. The more we understand, the more we are reduced in stature. There's so much more, and, and, and the world is so much greater than we expected, that a person has the appropriate humility between himself and Creator. That's one level of significance in delving and understanding more and more about the workings and complexity of the Bria. There's a second element, and uh, Jeremy suggested I, I express it, and I think it's very appropriate. There's an incredible of in Ezra. It's in Parshish Hazinu, and he speaks about Hazinu Hashemayim Vadabeira V'sishmar Tzimrifi. The Pasuk says that the heavens should listen when I speak, and the earth shall hear what I have to say. So it's a metaphor. A metaphor, a strange metaphor of heavens and earth, when you seem to mean everybody. So the Ben Ezra says, um, it, it might mean different things. He, he tries to give it its simple meaning. And then he says, He says, it's because these are the most firm, as far as we're concerned, heavens and earth represent something which is everlasting and, and, and as firm as can be. And then he says, the human soul is the only entity in the world that contains in itself a physical dimension and its transcendental dimension. In other words, we can physically um, we can express uh, the understanding of things that are tangible, that are visible, that are audible. And we can also understand things that are um, justice, kindness, um, sanctity, concepts that are metaphysical. And both of them are meaningful to us. 
angels don't deal with a physical world, and therefore, I, I assume an angel knows what the concept hard or soft is in some abstract way, but he doesn't experience hard or soft or warm or cold. Animals and anything under a human don't understand, don't have any sensory mechanism for sanctity, altruism, etc. They may act in certain ways, but that's it. Man is the only one. It therefore uses the physical world as a metaphor to, and I'm adding the word appropriately, understand things beyond and above. It takes the things that are high and translates it into the lower language. And so when we speak of somebody who's a very warm person, we're not talking about his temperature, we're talking about his kindness, we're talking about things of that nature. So we use physical metaphors to appropriately describe metaphysical behaviors. Um, and we're able to take concepts that are beyond this world and translate it into this world, and vice versa. We're able to see certain parallels because the klal is... God created everything in one line. So what's true up there is true down here. If we appropriately understand the universe as it is physically, we could, given the, the appropriate knowledge and wisdom, extrapolate the things beyond it. So when we have a more nuanced understanding and a, and, and a better understanding of physical phenomena, many of those give us a much better understanding of things that are beyond Certainly, we have to extrapolate. We're not talking about physical entities, but it is helpful. It's a, it's a two-way street, and that's an incredible of an Ezra that our physical self, in the sense that we we have an input of physical data that is meaningful to us, and we have the ability to sense metaphysical entities converge, and we can use one to help us understand the other. And and for as we broaden our horizons in different areas of science. Um, it's helpful, it gives us paradigms to understand things that are beyond possibly. Not everyone's capable, you talk about a very high madrega, but at least the understanding of it. So basically, two bottom lines is, one is just a general sense of getting to understand how much is in the world and how much um, wisdom lies in the world is a tremendous boost to Avas Hashem and by extension the Ramesses to Yiras Hashem. And secondly, the, if the paradigms are right, they open up for us doors of understanding deeper things because they are parallel, and we uniquely have the ability to draw those parallels and understand the two worlds a, as one. Sure. So, um, right, we, we know we, that we, we have an important concept we learn in, in Avos that uh, Omer Devar Vashem Omro, right, you want to always give credit where credit is due. So, I do want to give credit to uh, uh, Professor Richard Feynman, who uh, has spoken about this topic, and I've read a number of his essays, and they inspired a lot of the, uh, the ideas in this talk. Um, he, when when I was at MIT, this this was actually what we did for fun: is they would show in the, like the local lecture hall movie theater Saturday nights. They would show recorded versions of Feynman's talks from the '60s and like sell popcorn. And they were actually quite a big crowd, so they were they were great. And um, you know you can find them on on YouTube. They're great. Um, so the kind of the first most important thing to to get across, if we're going to talk about symmetry, is, of course, what what does this mean? What is symmetry, right? We inherently have a very natural feel for symmetry, um, even when you're not thinking about it, right? You see, um, you know, you see uh, a flower that has perfect petals all around in a pattern, and that's just inherently aesthetically pleasing to us. Um, there are certain things about or heavenly bodies that are round, perfectly round, and it's really 
there's an aesthetic uh, appeal to us. Um, so those are those are very clear, uh, easy to understand examples of objects that are symmetric, right? Um, I even got now I'm going to do my uh, my birthday party magic show impersonation. Right? Pull things out of my hat here. Right, here's a ball, right? A ball is symmetric, right? Uh, and I can rotate it this way, this way, this way, this way, and it always looks the same, right? So uh, that tells us that symmetry has something to do with the way something looks. Here's another ball. If I turn it, right, it looks different. That's why good hitters can hit a curveball, because they can see the ball turning. If I turn a baseball, let's see if I can do this right, backwards and, and, and also rotate it, it also looks the same. So that's something we call a discrete symmetry. It doesn't work every time, but if you do just the right shape of rotation and twist, then it looks the same. That's, a, uh, also, that's also a symmetry. It's something we call a discrete symmetry as opposed to a continuous symmetry. And we're going we're to see how both of those ideas become very important um, in physics and, and in the world around us. Um, the, the other important thing to understand, and this is a bit harder to get our heads around, is the difference between the symmetry of a physical object, like a ball, uh, and the idea of the symmetry of a law of nature, right? Um, so I'm standing here, right? Um, the, the biggest thing I feel right now is gravity, right? The, most of us, even though it's a relatively weak force by compared to some of the other forces in nature, to our day-to-day -day experience, gravity is kind of the big thing that we experience, right? So gravity points down, right? That means that if, if I take two steps over here to the right, it basically feels the exact same, right? That's because the law of gravity is symmetric, right, left, front, back. It's only up and down is different, right? So there's symmetry in gravity. I can take two steps to the right, two steps forward, I can turn around. It all basically feels the same. If I were to try to stand on my head for the rest of this talk, it would be very difficult, very uncomfortable. A little awkward, too. But, um, right, so that's the idea that uh, of, of a symmetry in a law of nature, right? Gravity is one of the, the fundamental laws of nature. So by understanding how it's symmetric under changes, right? I don't look the same. I look like I'm over here now. But gravity looks the same. So we're going to think of gravity as symmetric, right? Also, <coughs> gravity between objects in the sky, between the Earth and the Moon, that's symmetric because we know for every force, there's an equal and opposite force in the opposite direction. So the idea that you can kind of switch the two bodies, right? That's a discrete symmetry, switching two things around, and you have the exact same gravitational force. The law is symmetric, okay? So I was even going to have a little... Uh, guessing game, right? Here's our picture, our introductory picture of Feynman. So, so all the uh, students in the audience can get extra credit if they can guess who these people are, but uh, I mean, these guys are going to get so much extra credit <laughs> for, for just showing up. See, like, I even made these little uh, extra credit tokens. <laughs> if you fall asleep, I take it back. <laughs> uh, so we'll kind of skip over the little guessing game, unless any of the uh, the other audience members want to guess some of the, the harder ones. But this is Feynman, right? Um, Feynman or religious person? Hmm? That's, that's Feynman. Was Feynman a religious person? Not in what we would, no, not in, uh, in our sense of the word. He was Jewish, but he was, uh, he was not religious. Um, so, yeah, so American uh, theoretical physicist, Nobel Prize in Physics, 1965. Um, but uh, I won't even ask uh, a show of hands how many people know who Feynman is, but compared to, you know, your kind of typical, you know, who won the Nobel Prize in 1971, you know, the, Feynman has a, a very, very famous, you know, well-known reputation. Like I said, we used to go out Saturday night to watch Feynman movies. Um, and the reason is not just that he was a great physicist, but that he was just this phenomenal teacher and explainer of these concepts. And again, that's why 
Um, so much of this is, has been inspired by um, his ideas on the subject. So um, let's talk, right, so here's a, a brief outline of some of the topics. I already mentioned the first two, this idea between continuous symmetry and discrete symmetry. Um, and then we'll, we'll talk about how, you know, the, the title is The Role of Symmetry in Creation. So that has two major aspects that are kind of the, you know, two sides of the, of the same coin, which is the, the symmetry and unification of, of everything in nature, and then the, the opposite, which is the breaking of symmetry and the disunification of everything in nature. So uh, let's talk first about uh, continuous symmetry. So our example so far was me just walking back and forth. Um, the person who first really put this on a mathematical footing, what is so intuitive to all of us uh, just from our natural existence, was this woman, anyone? No, not Curry. Curry was an experimentalist. She's a uh, theorist. Uh, this, is, this is Emmy Noether who was a contemporary of Einstein. In fact, Einstein called her the most significant created female mathematical mind of all time. Um, and sorry, if, if he were alive today, 100 years later, I have no doubt he would make the same claim. Um, really, head and, head and shoulders above, uh, above her both male and female counterparts at the time. It's a really unfortunate that so few people know of her, but at least in certain circles, she's kind of coming back into vogue. So next time somebody asks you, hopefully you, you'll uh, remember. A um, couple of personal vignettes of her, right? She, she got kicked out of the, the best mathematical institution in Europe twice, once for being a woman in this, in, after World War uh, after World War One. All the men came home like, where did she come from? And uh, they tried to, but they did. They kicked her out of her faculty position. Um, and then, of course, her, her colleagues who knew her value went up in arms and got her reinstated until, uh, until the Nazis came into power and kicked her out again for being Jewish in 1933. And then, like so many others of her, of her kind, came to, came to the US, where unfortunately she passed away uh, shortly thereafter. So, but but uh, again, her her really really profound idea about symmetry was this connection between uh, continuous symmetries, right? Gravity, for example, moving back and forth, um, and what we call con you know con conserved quantities, conservation laws, right? So she said, and this is basically what what this idea of Noether's theorem. And remember, a theorem is not what they portray in the media. Like, oh, it's just a theory. A theorem is like about as awesome as you can get in math, right? <laughs> if you have a theorem, then you are right, right? It is a law. This is absolute and no, no disputing it. So Noether's theorem is that any time you have a continuous symmetry, like this left-right symmetry, you also have something in your system is going to be conserved. So the examples that we know of, right, these are, again, are, are things that we know very well from everyday living. We just didn't know of it in this language, right? So translation in time. What does that mean? Is that means that I'm still feeling the same gravity that I did 10 minutes ago. And if I were to stand here for another 10 minutes, it would feel the same. The, the laws of nature don't change in time. And that directly corresponds to conservation of energy. So this is, again, something that we're very familiar with. And, and over the last century, we've understood that Conservation of energy is in a very broad context, right? Mass energy is, is uh, sorry, I'm getting a wireless internet warning, but you're not seeing it, fortunately. Okay, sorry about that. Um, so conservation of energy, mass energy is, is a concept that we all uh, are, are very familiar with now. Um, this idea that I mentioned before, the translation in space, right? If I move left and right, it feels the same. Uh, that directly corresponds to the conservation of momentum, that objects moving in a straight line will continue moving in that straight line unless something else acts on them. And of course, if something else acts on them, then that's no longer symmetric. The system is no longer symmetric, so it, it can veer off to the left. I even have a little, this is my demonstration of, here, of this. I don't know who, who can see, but it's uh, a flat piece of wood. 
and this is a marble. And the, from the marble's point of view, right, this, this flat board is symmetric, front, back, left, right. It all looks exactly the same. So when I roll the ball across the wood, it, it just keeps rolling. Actually, it rolls backwards. As <laughs> <laughs> my theorists always have to be very cautious about doing, <laughs> doing demonstrations. Um, maybe I'll roll it faster. That seems to work. Um, in any case, it, it's, it's a little hard to see because we don't have enough to really see that if, and of course, right, air resistance, friction, all that sort of complications. Um, something else in my bag of tricks that we are familiar with is this third point, right? The rotation in space. Everything feels the same as you turn around. That corresponds to this idea of conservation of angular momentum. So I have a traditional Jewish toy here that I can spin on the piece of wood and it will just keep going around, at least until, until friction takes over. And those two ideas, are, again, are, are intimately connected. If you want to take it to a, a, you know, really the next level, um, this just permeates through all of modern physics, quantum mechanics, particle physics, um, electrodynamics. There's this concept in electrodynamics of a gauge transformation. You can basically call everything something else with certain rules, and it looks the same. So I won't get into the details, but that actually then leads to the idea that charge, electrical charge, is conserved. Right? No matter what you do, you can't just make a positive charge uh, or a negative electrical charge out of nothing. Um, so all right, so that, that's, that's Noether um, and symmetry and conservation. So let's, uh, let's move on now to the idea of, uh, of discrete symmetries. Again, this is things that you do, you know, you have to do like a whole turn, flip, upside down. Uh, we did the baseball. Another one of my favorites is the, uh, the little, a little soccer ball, right? Soccer balls are very cool because they have all sorts of different symmetries. You can rotate them around the pentagon five times. You can rotate it around the hexagons and all sorts of combinations thereof. Um, so it's a it's discrete symmetry, but it has a lot of really interesting complexity to it. Um, for the next point here, I'm going to actually need some volunteers um, who are sitting right in front. <laughs> and you want to uh, step outside for a minute? Actually, why don't you walk down to the end of the hall? No, no. Yosi, do you want to? Oh. Okay, no, you can go. You can go. Um, but just walk down to the end of the hall slowly, count to 100, <laughs> turn around, and come back. Okay, now quick. We need, uh, let's get like five or six other guys in the front. Come on. Stand up right up here in a row. Listen, if you don't want to do this, you have to bring more students next time. Ron, <laughs> you're, you're a putter. Let's see. Okay, let's see. So we're all going to stand in a row. Now, I want you three to move one step this way. One more step. Okay. Don't oh, know. Get back together. Now, let's see. Turn around. Face the wall. Jake, turn around. Face the wall. Okay, now Yosef should be back. <laughs> oh, here he comes. <laughs> now remember, this is a theorist's demonstration, so I have no idea if this is going to work. <laughs> Please take your spot in the line. Okay, everyone can sit down, except for Yosei. Why did, why did you stand there? Because we were facing this way and we saw the pattern then forward, back. Forward, back, forward, back. And one slot. Go ahead. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so it turns out that, that 
that idea of, of discrete symmetry, right, left, right, left, front, back, left, right, um, works, again, really well in nature. And just as we saw here, it, it has both descriptive and prescriptive qualities, right? You can predict where the next spot goes. So, uh, anybody? Who said that? Yes. Did you get, did you get uh, extra credit in the Yeshiva Gondola? You might be able to trade that with a high school student for a uh, favor or something. Alright, so this was uh, Mendeleev who, uh, who invented, of course, he invented the, the periodic table of the elements. So the whole point of the periodic table, and this is what it, it looked like to him, and it's a little, you know, a little bit different than what we're used to, but the whole point of the periodic table of the elements, right, was that he noticed patterns in nature, in the elements, right? Certain things lined up in certain spots, just like the boys lined up front, back, front, back. So you had certain groups of elements that all shared the same characteristic. And then if you moved over a step, everything changed by a little, but they all shared the same thing. And you moved over another step, and they, they all shared the same qualities. So he took all of the elements that they knew at the time, put them down in this chart, and there were, you know, holes in the chart. So instead of saying, you know, he was so confident in this power of symmetry, that instead of saying, oh, something's wrong with my model, he says, those are missing elements. There are elements that exist that will fill in these exact quantities, these masses and these number of electrons and protons, and we just have to go find them. That's how confident he was, and of course, we went, we looked, and we found them, <coughs> filled it out. Um, and that was just a, you know, a, a tremendous uh, successful achievement of this power of symmetry and uh, in the predictive power of these discrete symmetries. Um, another uh, another example is, is comes from again back to the the field of particle physics. Anyone? Gelman? Sorry? Gelman. Ah, I didn't put Gelman up. And if you, ask, if you want to know why, you would have to talk in private. This is, this is Yuval Neeman, Gelman's Israeli counterpart, right? He was also a member of Knesset and a brilliant physicist. I mean, that, what a, what a country. Right? <laughs> um, so he was a, uh, a particle physicist in the, in the 60s and uh, a contemporary of Gelman, who's uh, accredited with the, the, uh, the proposal, the, I guess, invention or discovery, depending on how you call it, of, of the idea of a quark. Um, so Neman independently came up with this idea called the, the Eightfold Way. And it's basically just a, a periodic table for the particles, as opposed to periodic table of the elements. So he took all of the... Um, a little out of focus. Is that better? Yes. Yeah. yeah. Sorry about that. Um, so he took all these known particles, right? You've heard of a couple of them. There's a, a neutron and a proton, and then these are all guys that only exist in particle colliders at high energies. But uh, even in the 50s and 60s, all of these were um, already discovered. And they have various properties, right? You can put them on this, like, hexagon chart where you kind of label this direction by their electric charge and this direction by something called their strangeness. You know, these physicists always have great names for things. Um, so it turned out that all of these particles fit into a nice little pattern like this. And you can do it with another set of particles that uh, share different properties, but all fit into a nice uh, triangle like this. And again, you kind of sort them out by their electrical charge and their strangeness. Um, have anyone ever heard of the strange quark? So the you know, these particles are all made up of quarks. So if you have one strange quark in your composition, then you have a strangeness of one. So that's just where the, this comes from. But when um, when Neumann and Gelman independently came up with this this little diagram, this model, at the time there was one particle missing. This this thing which we now call omega minus. Um, no one had ever seen it before. So they're, again, like Mendeleev, is that, well, either the model's not perfect, 
or even better, there's, we just haven't discovered it yet. So they went out, they said, you know what, there should be a particle, it should have a charge of minus one, it should have a strangeness of minus three, it should be roughly this mass, go look for it. And you know what, sure enough, they did, they went out, they looked for it, they found it, um, and they got the Nobel Prize. Well, Gelman did. Um, so again, we see this fantastic example of using symmetry to, to be able to predict about how uh, the world can work on a very fundamental level. So that I can't help but you know taking a step back at this point and um, you know understanding another idea of you know, this is this is not a joke slide, right? This is this is such such at the, at the heart of this connection between. Oh, so sorry, in the back these are the uh, uh, the, the Sotos of Kabbalah, right? And these ideas of connecting different uh, points in. Um, like a spiritual space, if you will, and how the symmetries can teach us something about how the spiritual world is connected. It's very intimately related to how physicists use the idea of symmetry to see how the physical world is connected. So hopefully, uh, Aaron will address some of the <laughs> more challenging questions. I don't. Is is there something? Is there is there a particle missing? Or is there another level of spiritual? How many people can I use to demonstrate? <laughs> and do they get extra credit? They get real credit. Okay. Um, so now let's move on to uh, the next idea, which is uh, symmetry and unification. Um, probably a lot of you have heard the idea of the grand unified theory. So we'll try to work our way towards what that actually means. Um, anyone? Maxwell. Yeah, Ariel? Maxwell. Maxwell, good, good. So this is James Clerk Maxwell, Scottish physicist in the 1800s, uh, most famous for, well, a lot of things. There's, there's the Maxwellian distribution. There's, uh, of course, Maxwell's equations. Um, so he was looking at how electric and magnetic fields behave, and he came up with a, a set of equations that looks like this. Um, even if you don't know uh, multivariable calculus, it's still you know, pretty simple, right? There's just a set of a few equations, and it just says, right, these E stands for electric, and B stands for magnetic. I don't know why it's a B, but I don't know why they use B. I think they use M for um, magnetic matter, and this is like a magnetic fact, but I digress. Um, so the idea that uh, you could actually write down with math how these different uh, quantities behave was in itself a remarkable um, achievement. And then what was even more exciting was the idea that they're actually related. You get down to these and you see that E and B are related to each other, right? So this is kind of like the idea that, right, you know how, roughly maybe, how a, a motor works, right? You've got an electric current uh, and you've got a magnet on the inside and you keep flipping the current around and that pushes opposite forces on the motor, and the motor starts moving around. But you can basically just take it backwards and crank the magnet, and you can generate electricity, right? So already at, at, in the 1800s, they knew that electricity and magnetism were very closely related somehow. And then it was Maxwell that showed mathematically exactly how, and Faraday also, how, um, how you, can, you can write down these ideas. So this was in a certain sense, the, the first great step forward in the unification of forces, right? We used to have a, an electric force and a magnetic force. And now we have one force called electromagnetism. Again, brilliant uh, physicist naming convention. Um, so important that you can even buy a t-shirt, right? It says, right, God says the uh, Maxwell equations and there was light, right? Uh, and that's because electromagnetism causes photons and light. You could wear this you wear this shirt at, at MIT, and like you won't get any kashas on the middle part. <laughs> um, this one, I, 
we don't even uh, we don't even give credit for uh, for Uncle for Uncle Albert. Um, so everybody knows Einstein. Uh, not everybody fully appreciates all the uh, all the stuff that Einstein was able to accomplish. But let's pick one example that that everybody does know, which is. He looks very young. E equals mc squared, right? Already, that's a unification idea. E and m, or like uh, energy and mass, are equivalent. They're they're unified. Two sides of the same coin. Um, we also the, right special relativity. Uh, in in 1905, he actually wrote two different papers. One about E equals mc squared. One about uh, special relativity. And two other papers, all of which independently won him the Nobel Prize. If again, if it weren't for the, uh, the general anti-Semitism in, in Europe at the time, he, Einstein probably would have been good for six Nobel Prizes. Um, but, you know, he still came out okay. So um, and, and the whole idea, right, of special relativity is this idea of space-time, right? Space and time are kind of uh, inherently mixed. Um, you know, this idea everything is relative, right? If you're going really fast, then you know, space might look different, time might go slower, space might look uh, more shrunk. The interesting uh, little side is that Einstein actually hated the term relativity because his whole point was not that everything was relative. His point was everything was the same. He loved this idea of unification. He loved the idea of, of achtus, right? Um, if someone's gonna ask, was Einstein religious? I would hesitate longer than I would for Feynman because he, he had in the Shema that was religious and it was so clear from his work. And this, this idea of unification so much defined all of, all of the work that he did. Right, so his idea that everything was the same, what does that mean? Is that means uh, what we, the technical term we use is um, everything is invariant. Everything is the same whether you look at it from one place to the other. Right? So the greatest example that most people know is the speed of light. Right? The speed of light is constant. No matter how fast you're moving, you shine a laser pointer outside and it always goes the speed of light. Um, which is weird because if you're you know, driving cars and you're throwing, you know, shooting bullets off of cars, you know, it's not always the same. It, 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 uh, you know, they add up. Um, anyways, that, that led this idea of invariance of some things never changing that actually led to his his whole idea of um, unifying space and time which then again we'll skip over the the details of the math but led him to be able to write all four of Maxwell's equations into a single equation once he fully appreciated how space and time were mixed he could also show that electricity and magnetism not only felt like two sides of the same point, but really were the same from a special relativity point of view. Um, slightly older picture, right, 10 years later, he spent basically 10 years working out the mathematical equations to then unify again, unify space and time, what we call special relativity, with gravity, which is what we now call general relativity, this idea that space and time are not just mixed together, but they're also warped, and that's how gravity basically works. Um, and then he was able, again, to just write that whole thing, the whole concept of gravity into a single um, relatively simple equation. Um, so it shouldn't come as a major surprise that he spent, with, with that much success under his belt, he spent the remaining 40 years of his life trying to unify the rest of the forces, which unfortunately was never successful, which we will kind of understand in the remaining few minutes of the talk why that got so complicated, basically because of quantum mechanics screwed everything up. Um, another example of, uh, of unification, uh, Salam Weinberg and Glashow, who uh, won the Nobel Prize, shared the Nobel Prize together in 1979 for the unification of the electromagnetic force now with what we call the, the weak nuclear force, um, just another one of the, the forces of nature. Um, and they did it through these ideas, remember, of the discrete symmetry. Remember that you know, little diagram of, of hexagons? Well, they showed that you could basically take that hexagon and you take another hexagon 
and you kind of rotate them into each other in a certain mathematical sense, and they look the same. So through, through diagrams like this, they were able to show that electromagnetism and a, the weak nuclear force were actually the same thing. Again, a one step closer to unification. Um, if you actually make, I think this is the only plot I have in the whole talk, and it doesn't even have an axis, so it's not really that mathematical. But right, these are the four forces we talk about. Um, the strong nuclear force, electromagnetic force, the weak nuclear force, and then gravity is way down here. And this, the idea of this, uh, the x-axis is just that as you go to higher and higher energies, which typically means into some sort of particle collider, all of these forces come together and start to overlap with each other, right? So from a symmetry point of view, they get, you know, uh, if you will, they kind of, you, you kind of can go back in time closer and closer to the beginning of creation where everything was at very high uniform energy, everything looked the same. Um, in a collider, unfortunately, we're only up to about here, which is kind of why we've only been able to actually unify these two forces, right? Um, and again, they had so much success from these different techniques of symmetry in unifying forces, you can understand why they basically have spent the last 40 years still trying those, um, those same techniques. Uh, Glashow wrote a paper in 1973 that was able to uh, unify the strong electromagnetic and weak forces all together in what we now call a grand unified theory. It just one problem is that it didn't work. Um, <laughs> so in all the years since then, physicists have been trying over and over again to try different symmetries, and this is the, the latest best guess at how this is going to work. Um, unfortunately, this model called the E8 uh, symmetry also doesn't work. Um, whether we're moving closer or farther is, is unclear. Um, you probably heard string theory, right? String theory is kind of the the leading best bet at how to unify everything together, including gravity, but even that is very, very limited success. Um, I just want to highlight one, there's basically one predictive success of string, string theory in the last 40 years. Um, and that is uh, due to a friend of mine by uh, name of Jakob Beckenstein, who unfortunately just passed away about a month ago. Mm -hmm. um, a real, real role model and idol of mine uh, was a, he was a, uh, a firm guy in, uh, at Hebrew University, and uh, back in the 70s, he proposed that, uh, we don't want to get into the, the details, but he proposed how you could measure the, the entropy, the randomness of a black hole by you know, slicing it up into these little pieces and you know, counting up all the little um, pieces of the surface of the black hole. So what does this have to do with unification is that string theory has basically made one prediction that not agrees with experiment, but at least agrees with another prediction, and that is the calculation of the entropy of a black hole. So that's like every string theorist always brings out this great uh, result. And uh, th this was not uh, Professor Beckenstein's result, but his was the result that they were able to agree with. So he's kind of come the closest to the unification of, uh, of anyone I know. Um, so let's uh, just now move on to the final topic, this idea of symmetry breaking, which I can now use my other demonstration Bring over here. All right, so here's a, a pendulum that I built, a theorist built something. And, uh, you know, it does what pendulums do, but uh, the cool thing is it, it can go this way, it can go that way. Right from its point of view, we have this symmetry: left, right, forward, backwards. So it can go back and forth, forward and backwards. It can even it can even spin, right? Because it has all these symmetries in different directions. Now we're gonna we're gonna break the symmetry by introducing another pendulum, right? So now it's no longer the forces on this pendulum are not symmetric anymore, right? Because it's feeling different forces right and left and forward and back. 
And what that means in practice is it can only go one direction. So it's due to its symmetry being broken, it is now basically restricted in its life choices. Right? It can only go back and forth. Um, from a particle point of view, we're going to have to skip that, I'm afraid, is most recent uh, big, big event in particle physics, of course, is a few years ago they discovered it's called the Higgs boson. I'm really not great at explaining this, um, but this is the, you know, the kind of toy model everybody uses, is that when you're really high energy, you're like a ball on the top of a hill, and every direction, right, left, front, back, looks the same. So that's symmetry. You can do anything. You're, you're a free agent. But then uh, at lower energies, the ball rolls down the hill, right? This hill is like energy, right? So you roll down the hill, and now you're kind of stuck in this valley, rolling around in a valley, which is nice and all, but your, your options are limited, right? So this is intimately connected to how we understand all particles have their own masses and they do their own things because at, at uh, you know, a long time ago at very high energies, everything was tohu vohu, everything could do anything, but then it had to split, right? All right? Everything started getting uh, separated into, into two different classes, right? So now we had something that could go in any direction, now it was limited to only going in one direction. So now it has a very specific, um, very specific character to it. So I did notice yesterday during the laning, right, that that in the in the first six days of creation, we use the word havdala uh, five times, right, because this is the fundamental process of of the bria of creation is havdala, separating, where you start off with everything being the same, everything being symmetric. And then you separate light and dark. You separate day and night. You separate Shemayim Va'aretz. And it just keeps breaking down and down and down until everything is in its, in its own proper place due to the breaking of symmetry. Um, so I'm just going to finish up with a pretty picture. Um, but also, because I'm an astrophysicist, so this is actually a more large-scale example of symmetry breaking that we deal with on, every, on the everyday uh, this is, yeah, sorry, this is my everyday. Um, <laughs> right, where did this, you know, how did we do this? How, you have this big, beautiful cloud of gas in space that's, you know, making stars and glowing and doing amazing things. What is gas? Gas is hydrogen. Hydrogen is just one proton and one electron. There's really not much to it. Um, but if you take even a step back and you have one proton and one electron, then there's really not much you can do. You're just an electron, you're flying around, you're the same as every other electron. There's nothing really you can do about it. First step you do to break that symmetry is you get together with a hydrogen, right? So, or a proton, now you're a hydrogen atom. And there's all sorts of new levels of complexity, right? You have different uh, quantum energy states that you can, you can go into and you know, uh, scatter off each other. And then you get, if you're really lucky, you get another buddy hydrogen together, now you have a hydrogen molecule, right? Two hydrogen uh, atoms can do basically anything, right? They can vibrate, they can spin, all because their symmetry has been broken. And then that symmetry breaking leads to basically clouds like this, because the hot gas can now cool by shaking off all of its excess energy. It cools down enough so that it can form stars, which then lights it back up and forms these beautiful pictures. So with that, I will return the stage to uh, Rav Ara to teach us about the missing I guess this is very symmetrical, a physicist and a rabbi taking turns. It's sort of a... <laughs> um, so I just want to finish off a minute or two on, on the extraordinary lecture that he gave. And sometimes it's when you hear something uh, explained about the world it, it opens up a whole new understanding of Torah there's a Pasuk in Kohelis it says Gam HaKadosh Baruch Hu created everything parallel to everything the word Lu'umas is a fascinating word it's, it's, symmetry is a, quite a good word for it it means opposite but equal 
So everything in the world, the Pasuk and Carlos says, Akashpoka created Zelumaseh. And Chazal elaborate. It, it's a, part of a longer story about Acher going off the derech, and that's also fascinating in its own right. I, I don't want to elaborate on that point, but I want, I want to get to the point that Chazal say. Amalai, kol ma'ashibara kadishbaruchu barak negdo. Everything Akashpoka created created something opposite and equal to it. Bara harim, he created mountains. Bara gvos, there are valleys. Bara yamim, he created oceans. Bara naharis, which is interesting. The contrast to oceans are not dry land, but um, rivers. Amalei Rabbi Kiva Rabbi Kiva didn't say those. Elo, bara tzadikim, bara shayim. There are tzadikim, there is shayim. Bara gan eden, bara gehenim. He created gan eden and gehenim. Everyone has a share in each, and depending on how they act, it evens out. In other words, at the end of the day, the score is even. The question is, who became a tzaddik, who became a rush, and so on. That's the, the Gemara as it is. The Gemara in Chagigan, Tesvav. Without going into the theological issues of, is good and bad, a zero-sum total, and everyone's got to have a piece, can everybody be good on that? But I just want to um, point out one or two things, I guess, from a Hashkafa point of view. It means that um, physically the world has symmetry, and the reason for it is, I would like to use there's a Kuzari that says that in the Bria we recognize God in both the diversity and in the unity of the root. In other words, the same God who is one, at the root you'll always have one, and God could take the one that is Him and create an almost infinite variety of distinctions and diversity. And both of them together give you an incredible sense of HaKadosh Baruch Hu. So it's true on a physical level, as, as Jeremy was pointing out. It's true also on a spiritual level. I think this is where we'd like to finish off with a, um, I guess, a, somewhat of a Lemaisa. There never ever will be a time <coughs> that until Mashiach comes, that we will solve the problems and there won't be a new problem. Um, for instance, let's just take something out of, just plucking something at random. Um, at a certain time, we became rational people and we dropped a lot of the nonsense of idolatry and Davodazaris and so on. So in the Greek period of, um, and in middle of Bayesheni. What happened parallel to that was we lost our sense prophecy, our sense of closeness, that type of, of relationship with Gashbaruch and all these things, they had to work in tandem. You cannot have a world where God is, is obviously supernatural in front of you, and nothing is opposite that. If you have a God of supernatural, you're going to have magic idols that either seem to work, or do work, or whatever it is. The rational process that destroyed and abolished the Zorah created its own problems with Amuna, and, and it never, uh, r- rational uh, objections were never objections to belief until that changed. So, does the Zelumase means for everything positive in the, in the creation, there's going to be a balance of something detracting, and we're always going to have to struggle with it? That's one practical, um, I guess, ramification that every step forward. Um, say some of the internet. The internet has brought has brought tremendous problems to, to society, and it's brought tremendous opportunities. And they and they're always balancing each other. The second one, and I guess in a opposite, in, in a very different way, is it also means that in the areas that we think are bad, and like Acher says, like and, and we're going to find things that are going to pull us to the good, because at the end of the day. And they both come to the same source. So just like we can learn about positively charged particles by looking at negatively charged particles, because anything that's truly opposite is the same, and you just have to flip it around, and you can predict things like, like he did. If there, there is a lot spoken, especially in Hasidic thought and Kabbalah, about sometimes the Rambam says, from how a person is infatuated with physical love, you can learn what infatuation with spiritual love means. We can always use them because they are balanced. The question is direction. So if, we, if we're able to understand, if we're able to take 
out from the things that are not good, but understand that it's coming from a certain root. And like, for, like the Rambam speaks about, just like people who do things that are crazy because they're so infatuated with something, and disregard everything else, a person can understand the devotion to ideals and to religion. So, I guess as a bottom line to this lecture, and uh, once again, a tremendous talk to you, is first of all, understanding that this incredible model, where we intuitively predict that there'll be a particle there, because if it came from one, it's going to come back to one. And the only way it can come back to one is if you always have a net zero diversification. There's always a balance between the different charges and, and so on and so forth. So in terms of understanding Amuna, it's a tremendous insight. And secondly, in terms of our practical applications of, of the good and the bad we see around us, we will never ever reach salvation until salvation comes. And in every area that will seem to us to be um, to have to be bad and bad, somewhere in that we're going to see the good because inherently in the root they're the same, but they're just going in the opposite direction. Thank you very much for coming, and we hope we'll many more times to be here.